Good evening. We're going to be going back to the Gospel of Luke tonight and taking a look at two different sections. And I'd like to read both of those sections with you at the beginning of our time. And then we're going to take a little photographic tour of a part of the Galilee so that you can have a picture of some of the geography and the layout of the land there where these passages occurred. The first passage tonight is Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. This was actually skipped over a few weeks ago when we had a snow night. Okay? I'm sure you were all keeping track of that and wondered what we were doing with this. But we did want to go back and catch it and just share with you a couple of things. Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought him to them. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here at the end of that chapter, Luke refers to Judea, which typically makes us think of southern Israel, but I think in Luke writing for his, his uh, Gentile audience, he's here referring to all of Israel because Jesus is still in the Galilee. This verse, I don't think, is telling us that Jesus traveled south to Judah, but it's Luke's reference to the Gentiles, so they knew Jesus preached throughout the various areas of Israel. Here, starting in Capernaum and then to other places. Now, if you will go over to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, we have Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 20. You will recognize it. Many of you are probably more familiar with Matthew's account of it. Matthew's is quite long. Verse 20, And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who bless you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standards of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And so what I'd like to do tonight for a few moments is take you to uh, part of the northern part of Israel, the area of Galilee, with some pictures and some maps and give some uh, explanation here of chapter 4, referencing Capernaum and some of the other areas on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then the sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, probably also a preach somewhere on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is actually a picture of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, standing on the hills on the Israeli side, looking over toward Jordan. And it's almost never this clear. Uh, I, we didn't take this picture. This is off the of a website. Um, I don't know if any of you, I'm sure you all follow the news on the rainfall in Israel, right? Um, well, I do, I do those kind of strange things um, because the Sea of Galilee has been at dangerously low levels for many years. They, are, they have been concerned that if the Sea of Galilee got any lower, they were going to lose some of the biological uh, life forms and habitat and to an unrecoverable stage in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's already almost no fishing done in the Sea of Galilee compared to biblical times. But just this winter, they've had so much rain that the Sea of Galilee, for the first time since, I think it's 1992, is back up to what they consider full. It, it has risen, I don't know, something like 30 feet in the last few years or something like that. Uh, 
the Sea of Galilee has been so low for years that the only reason the River Jordan downstream has any water in it is because they've been pumping water out of the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan River for the farmers downstream to use for irrigation. But they're rejoicing uh, all over Israel right now because the Sea of Galilee is full again. Most of you, I, hopefully by this time, are recognized this is the Dead Sea, this is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, you can see the greenery in the northern part. The northern part of Israel gets uh, significantly more rainfall. Uh, this area in here gets about the same amount of rainfall that we do. Down here, they get about an inch a year. So just in a hundred miles uh, makes a huge difference in Israel. Around the Sea of Galilee in the time of Christ, there were numerous man-made harbors. Little villages, some of them only a few dozen homes, and the people uh, made their living often, often by uh, fishing in the Sea of Galilee for two major kinds of fish. One is a kind of a sardine, and the other is a kind of like a tilapia. And uh, up here in the northwest, um, Mary Magdalene was from a little town up in here. Magdala is listed right here. And Magdala was known as a fish shipping village. They, uh, they had all kinds of containers, and they would catch the fish, and they would salt them, and they would take them down to the coast of the Mediterranean, and they would be uh, shipped around the Mediterranean. Uh, it was food for sailors on their ships that would last. And, and also, I'm not sure if they made a fish sauce or not, but uh, some of the Mediterranean areas, uh, the villages would make a fish sauce that was shipped all over the Roman Empire. Uh, they would ship that in crocks or pots. But you can get an idea of the activity of the fishing villages around here. Now, it's, it's about a 36-mile walk around the Sea of Galilee. So if you want to go from one side to the other, and you can catch somebody that's making a few extra bucks in the daytime using their fishing vessel as a taxi, it gets a, you, know, you can get across the lake in a couple hours as compared to walking 18 miles to get to the other side. You can see why the traffic was so heavy. This is a fishing net, a typical little wooden or cork floats on the top, would have kept the top of the net on the surface. These are ship's anchors. These two big stones are not. Something like this would have been a ship's anchor. And some have thought maybe these were mooring stones along the shore to tie the boats to. Uh, they've actually figured out now that these were cult stones. These were set up in pagan temples, and they, worship, they were worshiping the god of the waters, the god of the sea, the god of fishing, or something like that. And uh, so these are, these are a part of pagan ritual that's taking place in the land of Israel. These are stone weights that are used on the bottom edge of the nets to hold the nets down in the bottom. And uh, you can see some of them are pretty good size, and they all have holes drilled through them. Uh, they went down to Home Depot and got a Black & Decker drill and drilled a hole through there in about two minutes, and uh, they were ready to go. You can imagine how much work it would have been to drill holes uh, in some of these. Some are quartz and some are basalt. They're, some of them are hard rock. This would have been uh, a picture of the Sea of Galilee at night. When the moon is out, remember, these fishermen worked at night, most of them, because this is when the fish would come into the shallows and come into the surface waters to catch. 
And this white dot is about where the town of Nazareth is. Of course, that's where Christ grew up, spent his boyhood. It's where he apprenticed to learn the trade of carpentry. It's where he was in business probably with his father. And as far as we know, his father had passed away. And in his adulthood, he was supporting the family by working as a carpenter. And by the way, in in Israel, in biblical times, if you were a carpenter, you were mostly a stonemason. Uh, they had chopped down all the trees back in the time of Joshua, most of the trees. There were very few trees left in Israel, except for fruit trees and olive trees and those kind of things. So it was mostly a uh, working as a stonemason. Here again is the Sea of Galilee. You'll notice the topography around here. This is all hill country. Uh, of the northern Galilee, Nazareth is up in the hills. Down in here is some valley, valley farmland. And then over here is the country of Jordan, which is mountainous. Um, just north of here is uh, Mount Hermon, which is the highest peak in uh, the eastern Mediterranean. And right now, this time of year, uh, Mount Hermon is snow-covered. And uh, you can go skiing there, along with the Israeli military training there with their alpine unit on the hills. But this is where Jesus would have traveled, all over these areas, these little valleys, these little ridges. There were hundreds and hundreds of villages all around these areas at the time of Christ. Uh, some estimate uh, millions of people that lived in this area in the time of Christ. I don't know how accurate those numbers are. This is the city of Nazareth today. As you can see, it sits up on a hill, and there's another of the ridges behind it. These hills are approximately 2,000 feet above sea level, um, give or take. You can see this town is nestled in a, in a basin here. The old town, the biblical town of Nazareth, is up here somewhere in this area. And um, they have uncovered part of the ruins of the town of Nazareth from when Jesus lived there around that time, the first century. They've rebuilt some of the stone walls to show you what the terracing would have been like for uh, some, some uh, crops or olive trees grown, some vineyards and uh, those kind of things. Uh, but mostly, uh, it's a lot of rock. And now this is an olive tree here, some olive trees up here, um, because they grow in less favorable soil. This is a cistern that has been uncovered from the time of Christ. This is the capstone that's on top of the cistern, and you can see the grooves that are worn in that rock from generation after generation, pulling ropes up out of that cistern. Uh, they did not have fresh water in Nazareth. They, had, they caught rainwater in cisterns, and that's what they drank in the dry season. So imagine um, catching rainwater in 55-gallon drums and letting it sit for six months. And, uh, and then drinking it. And that was the freshest water that they had. This is an olive uh, press, a large, a very large olive press that they have found uh, uh, from the time of Christ in the town of Nazareth. Uh, of course, whether Jesus' family ever helped with this, we don't know. But this is a big wheel that was used to crush the olives, uh, to... to uh, the initial crushing, the olives were put in here, 
and uh, someone would walk around and, and roll that stone around. Perhaps they used a donkey, I don't know. And then they would come over here, and this, this is a log, uh, and these are stone weights, and they would use that to press the, the olive oil. Uh, they would put that in baskets, very much like a cider press. Have any of you been to the cider mill and you've seen they put the apple mash in that burlap stuff, and then they press it. That's the same way they make olive oil. But I want you to notice the ingenuity. These rocks, I don't know how many hundreds of pounds each one of these weighs, but they have holes drilled through them this way and square holes going down to meet this hole that goes through this way. And then up here you have a wooden, um, it's like a pulley system. They, would, they had the wrap, rope wrapped around this, and by putting this stick in the various holes, they could turn this, what do you, I don't even know what you call it, this turn style, and they would lift these stones up to put weight on this log so that this log was pressing down more at the other end on the olives. So they could lift up, this is probably at least a half a ton of weight. The ingenuity uh, is incredible. They actually, and and uh, even the carpentry work here, uh, these are vertical boards coming down and these have mortise and tenon fittings in them to keep these from, from uh, being misplaced while they're, while they're turning. Incredible capabilities. The typical scene in a village as Christ would have gone from place to place. Now this is probably not as nice of a kitchen as Mary had in her home. This would have been the kitchen for the very wealthy in the time of Christ. You say, really? Yeah, well, here's your countertop your table. This is a work area over here, and it happens to double as a work area. It's also the in-house cistern. Very few people would have had a house, a cistern in their home, but this lady did, and uh, it still collects water today. They took the lid off. You can look down in there and see the water. Over here's her uh, General Electric range, Wolf stove top cooking system. This is an outdoor kitchen. There was a lean-to roof over part of it, but it's basically open air. Uh, Israel is in latitude equivalent from about Myrtle Beach down to uh, north central Florida, that kind of a range of temperature. So it's a milder climate than up here. But this would have been her kitchen area where she uh, made the meals for the family. This would have been, this is the outside of that same house. This would have been a wealthy person's house to have a house this big uh, like this. This is the synagogue. This is a, a, this was not the synagogue of Nazareth. It was a synagogue they uncovered in another town but moved it here to this historic area to show you what a first century synagogue was like in these small villages. Here in a synagogue like this, Jesus would have learned how to read and write. He would have memorized uh, probably the first five books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. And uh, that was a typical schoolboy's training in those days. It, this was also where the local village folks would gather on a Saturday. The ladies would sit on one side with their children. The men would sit on the other side. The other side is a replica of this. It, it's the same all the way around. And, um, and then they would have the, the, some of the scrolls would be preserved in big jars like the one you see there. They would get out the scrolls. They would have a reading in Moses, a reading in the historical books or the Psalms, a reading in the prophets, and then someone would speak. 
and this is often when Christ would speak in the synagogues. On a Sabbath, we find him often on the Sabbath in the synagogue speaking, and we just read in chapter 4 that people were amazed at the authority with which he spoke. He talked like he knew what he was talking about. And then he showed them that he knew what he was talking about when he cast out the demons. They were amazed by his teaching as well as by his power. This is the hillside outside of Nazareth. <clears throat> there are parts of Israel that are good for absolutely nothing but grazing animals. And that's why there's a lot of grazing, uh, even today in, in Israel. Again, you can see the mountain area looking over toward the modern city of Nazareth. <clears throat> and as you go out toward the edge of the hill, you come to ledges like this. Remember, it says that Christ, when he went and preached in Nazareth, they did not like what he was saying, and they took him out to throw him off the cliff. They certainly did. They took, I don't know how far they got and how close they got to the edge of this cliff, but they took him out here to the cliffs to throw him off because they thought he was uh, blaspheming God. You see the drop-off in the background. Now, the valley behind that is the Jezreel Valley, the plains of Megiddo, it has several different names in the scriptures. There were a lot of that was inhabited. It was all inhabited at the time of Herod, but um, Herod made most of it his own private estate. He confiscated all the lands and uh, sucked up all the profits off of all that farmland instead of letting the people benefit from it. So here you have the, the Sea of Galilee. Up here you have, uh, along the north shore, you have... Uh, Capernaum on the, toward the center. Over on this side you have Bethsaida, James and John, the fishermen over here. On the hill we have a town called Chorazin, and we'll come back to that uh, a little bit later on. This is the, the place where Jesus went back and forth by ship to get from side to side. Down here on this side is, is where the uh, herd of swine ran down into the sea. And the people asked him to leave because they didn't want him there. Um, and it's somewhere up on these northern plains, uh, these northern hills, where Jesus probably preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you go over there today, there is a Roman Catholic church on the very spot. The very spot. So they say. Every, every spot you go to, there's a Catholic shrine of some kind on every, just about every spot. And maybe some of them are accurate, but who knows. This is the, the sea, uh, from the Sea of Galilee looking up into the Jordan Hills to the east. And so you can see the elevation that comes up right out of the water. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And so the reason the storms are so fierce is because the winds come down off of the mountains and that the drop and the change in the elevation causes tremendous uh, weather changes in the patterns. This is the city of Tiberias on the Israeli side of the Sea of Galilee. The, there was a city there at the time of Christ. It obviously wasn't the same or as big as it is now. It's a, a big tourist town today. Uh, these are some of the hills on the Israeli side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you look here, you can see some lines going across the hill. 
don't know if you can see those very well. See the lines going up the hill? Those are the, those are the goat paths and sheep paths of grazing animals going up and down these hills, and they're probably, in this, they're probably following the same paths that have been there for thousands of years, worn into the sides of the hill from the animals going up and down. Uh, this is the northwest edge, a northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to take you up to the top of this ridge and show you the view from up there. But the city of Magdala, Mary, of, uh, Mary Magdalene, was from up in here somewhere in this area uh, near the edge of the sea. So as you can see, you kind of get a better picture of how much that comes up out of the water. And then from up on the top, you're looking down at uh, these are all... These are all olive groves and um, citrus fruit. The, the, the olive color green is, is called that for a reason. So you can see the difference in the shades of green, I think. Now this is from top of the same mountain looking out toward the Sea of Galilee. So you can see the drop in elevation from the top of these ridges down to the sea. And Christ quite often went up to the tops of these mountains to pray and to get away from the people. But then he would send his disciples down to get into a boat and cross the sea to go somewhere. You can also begin to see how this flattens out around the northern curve. You can see the curve of the Sea of Galilee around here. And you can see it, it looks flat from up here. It doesn't look flat from down at the water, but it looks flat from up at that elevation. This is a view from the water. So you can see it's not flat, but it's flatter. Uh, and it's somewhere on these rising hills that Christ would take advantage of the topography when a crowd would gather and he would stand in some place where he could speak and the people could be seated on the side of the mountain as he preached. And that's why they call it the Sermon on the Mount. He... <clears throat> Another view a little bit farther to the east. Um, that again is the Jordanian side. So you can see some of this northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's this flatter area up here where Christ uh, probably preached the Sermon on the Mount over here near Bethsaida somewhere where he probably fed the 5,000. You can see the Jordan River is coming into the Sea of Galilee from farther up. And this was all swamp area uh, at the, probably at the time of Christ. Um, that the Hula Valley, that far north, was never inhabited or farmed until after 1948 when modern Israel moved in and uh, drained the swamps and turned it into uh, arable land. But you see a little bit here of the hill country, the demonstration of the hills around the sea. A lot of rugged people, they, they would walk for miles and it was up and down hills, they, they thought nothing of it. Um, we wimp out if we don't get the closest place to the grocery store door. And then we want to pull around so somebody else loads our groceries so we don't have to carry them all the way out to the first parking space. This gives you a little bit of an idea of, uh, of just of a map of where Bethsaida is and Capernaum over here and some of the ministry of Christ. Again, this is up on a hill near Bethsaida. Uh, this is, let me go back. 
Uh, this is the mountain from which I took those pictures of this flat area. So you're across now looking back toward that mountain. So it was on these hills somewhere where Christ often gathered crowds to preach. And you can see every available space that is farmable today is uh, farming. Except land like this. One of the amazing things was to see how many rocks there were. It is just unbelievable, rocky hillside. Isn't that crazy? So you wonder why they built their houses out of rocks? They were free. Go get some. How big a house do you want? Well, it's limited by how many rocks you want to carry. But the other thing I was thinking about was, what a great place to gather a crowd. You're not trans trespassing on anybody's land. You're not tramping down somebody's barley crop. You're not invading somebody's bean patch. You're, you're not in somebody's orchard or vineyard or, or olive growth. You're not causing any property damage to anybody. They might have had to scoot a few goats out of the way. But you could gather a crowd on this hillside and everybody would have a rock to sit on. Maybe in our building transition, we should try that. <laughs> it's just mind-blowing how many, it's just rocky all over the place. After, after about the third day we were over there, I just kind of shook my head and said, who would want this place? Parts of it are beautiful, but, but trying to live there and uh, now trying to feed 10 million people uh, and this little area that they have to work with, it's just amazing. Here's a little bit greener area, but still, look at all the rocks. It's crazy how many rocks there are. Here's another uh, look at, at those hills around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. This is, these are the ruins of the town of Chorazin. And I want to just uh, wrap up our pictures with... Um, a reminder about that. So here's Nazareth where Jesus started out. He later made Capernaum his headquarters, worked around the Sea of Galilee a lot. He traveled farther than what's on these maps. Obviously went down to Jerusalem in that area as well. He went as far as the coast of the Mediterranean. But up here's the town of Chorazin, and here's the town of Bethsaida. Luke 9 is going to tell us that he took the apostles, and you'll have to forgive the spelling on this rock, and withdrew apart to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and cured those who were in need of healing. But then later he said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities, we're more obedient than two cities of the Jewish people. Are you kidding me? Well, there's Chorazin. What's left of it? It's a pile of rocks sitting on a hill, and not a soul lives there. And it's been that way since the first century. There's another picture of it. It's just ruins. This is Bethsaida. Been this way for almost 2,000 years city in ruins. Why? Partly because they rejected Christ and God brought his judgment upon them. 
So this is going to take us to the context of Luke chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like to have us take a few minutes to think about the Lord Jesus Christ preaching on his Sermon on the Mount. Um, there are people today who, who promote the idea that Jesus was being very radical when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And they like to talk about Jesus being radical and that that gives us cause to be radical, a radical faith. We hear all this radical. I get so tired of it. <clears throat> I want to submit to you tonight the idea that Jesus Christ was not calling the Jewish people to anything new. He was echoing the voice of the prophets of old, calling Israel back to their God. And I believe it's easy to demonstrate that from the Old Testament as well as the New when you're familiar with this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I want you to notice in all of these references from the Old Testament, there is no reference to sacrifices, to rituals, to ceremonies, to holidays, to Sabbath keeping, etc., etc. You'll find occasional reference to it here, but, but the whole point is going to be that God wanted Israel's heart. He wanted his people to love him and worship him. That is what God wanted. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Christ later called these the two greatest commandments, the greatest commandment and the second one. Then in Deuteronomy 10, <clears throat> This exhortation, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Keep all the Sabbaths, bring sacrifices, do all the things, do this, do all the rituals, all the ceremonies. No, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. That was the cry of Moses to the people of Israel explaining what God wanted. We jump way now uh, uh, hundreds of years to the time of Samuel and his exhortations to Saul when Saul was only partly obedient. And Samuel said to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Is he saying God doesn't want sacrifices? He's not saying that at all. But he wants our sacrifices out of our heart of obedience and love. That was the Old Testament message. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. The King James translated that witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Disobedience is, is, is as bad as being involved in the occult. Also then, when God sent Samuel... After that, to go anoint David as the king, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Is that not what the Jewish people were doing in the time of Christ? They were all going through the external forms of their Jewish religion. It had all come down to the do's and the don'ts. And, and following all the rules and making good appearances and making sure you had all your ducks in a row. Um, this is God's words to Solomon. 
after Solomon asked God for wisdom and understanding. At the end of verse 11, he says, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. In verse 28, when all Israel heard the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And then the next verse, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. The Old Testament used the word justice to, as kind of a catch-all word for a godly man, a just man was an upright man. He was a godly man. He was a man who loved God and loved his neighbor and treated people well. And you see that as you go on through the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs, Solomon um, gave these words of exhortation. Uh, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. I submit to you that this is exactly what Jesus was saying to the Jewish people when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He was calling them back to obedience to their God. I'm not saying that the Old Testament law could save anybody by keeping it. No, the Old Testament law convicted people because they were such wretched sinners. But it also gave them blood sacrifice to cover their sin and cry out to God for his mercy and to come by faith the way he told them to come into his presence. If they would just love him and believe. There are six things the Lord hates. And you can look this up in the book of Proverbs. Yes, seven, which are an abomination. And there's not one of them that has something to do with forgetting to keep a ritual. Or, or not doing something exactly the way the rabbis tell you to do it. There's not one. They're all matters of the heart and manifestations of the heart. The, later on, the prophets are calling Israel back to obedience from times uh, when Israel was horribly uh, caught up in wickedness. All of the pagan rituals and ideas and all of the pagan idolatry and all the pagan worship, the pagan sacrifices. They were, they were building temples for pagan gods and worshiping them, and then they were going over to their temple to worship Jehovah. Same day, from one to the next, covering all the bases. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying the same thing. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. When you, read, when you hear the Old Testament prophets, when they, when they later describe the kingdom to come, it is a time when people will be so in love with the Lord that no one will have to teach them the law because they will have it in their hearts, written there by the Spirit of God. And that's Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The Spirit of God wants you to have the law in your heart. Jeremiah 5.1, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look down and take note and seek in her open squares if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. Who's her? Jerusalem. Find one man who loves me. And I will pardon the whole city. 
remember, the city was destroyed. What does that tell you about how many they found? It, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so many of the prophets. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, have wronged the poor and the needy, and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. There's not one thing in there about not keeping the rituals and the ceremonies. <coughs> about taking too many steps on the Sabbath and not washing your hands before a meal. Not one thing. It was about the wickedness that was in their heart that was being manifested instead of a love for God and coming to God crying out for blood-covered mercy. The, the, the incredible story of Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, not so that you can keep all the rules, but so that we have a relationship, a righteous relationship. Hosea 12, observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. Ask and ask and ask, and you'll have an answer. Seek and seek and seek, knock and knock and knock. Same, same message. Christ was preaching the message of the Old Testament prophets. Micah said, what, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and yearly calves? That's what we're doing. This is the ritual. This is the stuff. This is the, this is the commandment. We're fulfilling it. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? The obvious answer is no. Why not? Because our hearts aren't right. And now here he alludes to a pagan practice that Israel was, was practicing. Oops. Right here. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Shall I bring my child to the sacrifice, my oldest child, and sacrifice him to you as my sacrifice? Because that's what the Israelites were doing with their children down in the valley of Hinnom to the god Molech. They were taking their own children down there to the pagan god Molech, and they were offering their children to be burned alive as an offering for their sins. And then they were going up to the hill to the temple of God and going in and going through the ceremonies of worship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is there something wrong with that? That's what Micah is getting at. That's his point. Luke is going to tell us in chapter 11, another confrontation with the Pharisees. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did, he not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within us charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and ruin every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and love of God but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You're, you're in there in your kitchen and you collect up a bunch of, of uh, uh, um, spice, er, herbs from the garden and your wife is using them in the kitchen. Oh, wait, wait, honey, give me one-tenth. We've got to set that aside for the Lord. And then you go out and you mortgage a widow's home and kick her out of her house and put her out on the street. Oh, you're keeping the law. But where's your heart? Where's your heart? This was a message of Christ 
in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus was preaching the good news that the kingdom of God was near at hand, but the people weren't ready for it because they were still caught up in the outward rituals, and he was getting at the heart. He talked about humility and meekness and gentleness and peaceableness and love of your neighbor. He didn't talk in the Sermon on the Mount about keeping the rules. He talked about the heart. He, he, we read through the passage in chapter 6. You'll notice I'm not taking time to go through it because I'm trying to give you the background behind it. And you can read through it and get it yourself. It's there. Uh, you, you know, you're all used to the idea, he said, of, of loving other people. Yes, yeah, so, so you'll invite this guy over for dinner because he's going to invite you over next Tuesday night. And you'll, you'll loan money to this guy because next week he'll loan money to you. And that kind of stuff. No, Jesus says you need to love those who hate you and the ones who want to kill you. Now he's getting down to the heart. He's getting to where we really live. He talks about persecution and praying for your enemies. So Jesus, in my opinion, was not being radical. He was simply echoing the ancient call of the prophets of God to his own people to call them back to a heart of faith and a spirit of obedience. Yes, Jesus was pre preaching something that sounded new to the people because they'd been so misled by the Pharisees and the scribes and other leaders of the day, they had lost the essence of God's purpose in the law. And they had all come to the conclusion that, well, we can become self-righteous by keeping the law. No, that's you, you've got it wrong, Christ is saying. Israel had missed the whole point. And sometimes so do we. Isn't it so easy to get caught up in the externals? I, maybe not in your house. I'm sure every Sunday morning you wake up with a spiritually refreshed heart. And, and your feet, even before your feet hit the floor, you say, praise God, today is my day to go and fellowship with God's people and worship with God's people. And no, what usually happens on Sunday mornings, oh, the alarm clock didn't go off or I didn't turn it off. It's like, oh, we're late. Everybody's seat hit the floor and you start to scramble. And we don't even want to know what it's like in your car on the way to church on Sunday morning. But then we all come in here And people come to visit, and they feel like, I could never live up to that. Oh, no. listen, my friend, the local church is a hospital. We come in here broken and bruised and battered and bleeding, crippled and maimed and blind and halt. We come here to be nursed back to health. We come here to be lifted up and encouraged. We come here to strengthen one another. One of the things my wife says, I love the, the, this analogy. She says, no, she says, I'm just, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where I found a crumb of bread. We all need the Spirit of God to be at work in our heart, working on the inner man. Yes, I, I'm, okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you didn't wear your pajamas. But it's not about the outward form. It never has been. It never was. It never will be. 
It's about the heart. The echo of the Old Testament is that God is looking for a people who will humble themselves before him and come to him for the way that he provides to come into his presence. God is looking for, yes, right theology. Yes, he's looking for separation from worldliness. But he's looking for a relationship that is by faith through shed blood of an adequate substitute to cover and then in Christ to remove our sin. That is God's way. That has always been God's way. Even though there are things that change from age to age. The church age is different from the Old Testament age. I'm very glad that it is. But this sermon that Christ preached, and this may simply be a summary of a, the kind of a message he often preached as he went from place to place. This may be a representative uh, summary of, of, of what he preached almost everywhere he went. Uh, that is a possibility with the Sermon on the Mount. But this sermon is rooted in and it resonates with the prophetic traditions of the Old Testament prophets from Moses all the way through to Malachi, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah with a healthy dose of Daniel and the minor prophets thrown in there as well. Jesus' words were not new and radical. They were completely in keeping and continuity with the Old Testament scriptures. He was calling God's people to prepare for the kingdom by seeking righteousness in him. In him. I trust that as you read through these passages and this section of Luke that you will be able to reflect on these things and benefit from, from some of this background. In our next time together, um, I believe it's going to be it's either Pastor Mike or Pastor Steve uh, now going forward with the next section, and it's going to be the parables that Christ gave to demonstrate the kingdom in this Sermon on the Mount. So we look forward to what God has for us as we continue to study. Keep reading. Keep reading Luke. Keep thinking and praying and asking God to teach us. Father in heaven, I thank you tonight for Luke's diligent research, for his orderly thinking, for his excellent work as he yielded to the Spirit of God and was used by the Spirit to write Holy Scripture and give us this wonderful account of our Savior. Father, help us to understand the Jewish people, the Jewish mind. Help us to understand Christ, his teaching, his work, the power and authority that he demonstrated. Help us to see him by faith. Help us to see him this day at work in our own lives by faith. And we thank you that you have worked in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure by giving us the Holy Spirit of God to continue that work that Christ started in days of old. We thank you and praise you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.